Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, you should be shredded and eaten by dogs! Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Slaughter. We're here again. As ever. Always. Bi-weekly. I don't like bi-weekly because it means two things. Fortnightly. And fuck it, where every week you get a slash and dash. Pipe yeah, down. You get a summit. No one's, no one's complained. <laughs> okay, so I'll start us off. I've looked into the life of a man called John Cannon. And he is... Currently serving a life sentence up in Yorkshire, having been convicted of murder, rape, attempted kidnappings. He's also suspected of murder of at least two other people. Spoiler alert. But, well, I thought I'd say it because there's so much misinformation about him out there. There's tons of stuff online that you can find out, but so much of it is conflicting. He's Mm. been a suspect in that many cases that I feel that a lot of it's become muddied. So I'm basically putting this disclaimer out there because if anyone goes to fucking Murderpedia and comes back at me saying, oh, you got that wrong, no, I bloody didn't because I looked at everything and my main sources come from... (laughs) You're already getting angry. No one said shit. But I'm just, I know... No one ever questions Basically, if you Google John Cannon, you're going to get a lot of information that pops up first. I don't necessarily agree with the information that pops up first. So I'm just saying that. I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast is Googling these people afterwards. Uh, You're going to want to look up this guy. Because there's a lot that I haven't been able to fit in, is also the other thing. The story is so full, and there's so much stuff that are huge chunks of it that I really haven't been able to present to you today. So if you do find it interesting, then I would recommend looking at certain things. But some of my main sources, there's a guy called Christopher Berry D, who's written a couple of books. He wrote a book on John Cannon uh, called The Lady Killer, He also had loads of correspondence with him from prison. He's got hundreds and hundreds of letters from John Cannon. And he's written a book called Talking with Psychopaths and Savages, where he's written to loads of different people. I think I've read some of that. Um, But one is this person. So so a lot of stuff comes from him, because he's got the it out of the horse's mouth. Um, Also, there was a Crime Watch special that came out in 1989 basically right at the time of conviction. So I think if anyone's got the fact right, it's the police that were there at the time. There's also been a summary of his life compiled by researchers Waddle Berlin and Mank at Radford University. So basically, shut your mouth. 
No one said shit. There's conflict. There's a lot of conflicting things. When you go and research, look this up later, and you'll be like, hmm, I wonder about that. You'll be like, oh, actually, it says he was at a petrol station. Oh, actually, it said he was wearing a mask. Well, let me tell you. I'm not interested in hearing petrol station. Keep your petrol station stuff to yourself. <laughs> so, he was born on the 24th of February in 1954 in Sutton Coalfield. And he was from a fairly middle-class family. His dad had been a lieutenant in the RAF in World War II and then became involved in the motor trade where he would later give John a job. And John said that he just fell in love with cars and he was inspired. But John... Fell in love with cars, not that documentary. Dick up the exhaust pipe, yep. But at age four, John was sent to a private boys' school and... Later in life, he would have... I mean, he was from a nice family, and he has obviously had... They've been tried to give him a good education, but it's thought that he had a lot of affectations, that he would... I mean, he's from Birmingham, basically, but he would put on, like, a really fancy accent. And I mean, if you're from Birmingham, you're going to put on a different accent, aren't you? And yours, yours, born's rocking that one. <laughs> Later... He would boast about how, when he was at school, even at a young age, he could use his exceptional charm to persuade a particular teacher to give him the biscuits that she had at break time. (laughs) When you're young, like, the smallest things are so important to you, aren't you? I know, but can you imagine, if you've bought a biscuit for your break time, what would a... Grooming. Would you do that? I wouldn't give one child a... Well, I wouldn't give anyone food. Emma doesn't share food. (laughs) Then things changed. They had a new head teacher at the school, a new regime, and like a lot of 50s schools, regular beatings. Oh, shit. And not too much emphasis is placed on the beatings as what shaped him. I think a lot of people at that time went through it. But then there was an incident that happened around the age of eight. He was taken into an empty classroom by a male teacher who ordered him to take his trousers off and then touched his genitals. He then asked John to do it to him as well. And Cannon told how he's just... I mean, eight, an eight-year-old is small. Yeah. And they were just too frightened to refuse. Oh. And he said this abuse carried on for months. Oh, God. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cannon's father was said to have... He was quite overbearing and had a quick temper. And so he didn't really care for any whining about him not wanting to go to school or complaints that people were mean as much as an eight-year-old can express what's happening Mm. he wasn't really there for it so as a result canon sort of he was really had a nervous disposition his drive's been highly strung lots he was really hypersensitive and he developed a stammer so his parents did take him to the doctors for the stammer at age nine and he was then removed from the school said this is causing problems so reflecting from prison in his letters, Cannon would later blame this trauma for his lack of closeness with other people. And he says this is sort of the reason why he began committing criminal acts. He wasn't close to his family. He couldn't form relationships because he was so traumatised. So he went about doing bad shit. Yeah. Which I wouldn't have expected to be sticking your hand up a woman's skirt in a telephone box, which was his first crime. Okay. In a telephone box. Yeah. I mean, I suppose they're trapped, aren't they? Yeah. He was 14 years old, and he just said, he put his hand up a skirt. Which, what are you going to do? Grab it? I know, what's it? Pat it? Just jabbing out? I don't know, like... I don't know what a hand up a skirt achieved. So he was caught for that, and his parents were told, and he was given 12 months probation. And then he also began to skip school regularly. But he wouldn't just 
bunk off and do smoke or anything. He would go and spend his time in the library. He definitely believed that he was an academic and he thought that schools couldn't teach him as well as he could teach himself oh. and that he, he could just leave and go to the library and read philosophy and read theology. That's that, the real education he needed. real teenage egotism, isn't there? I love that. Do you know when I love that? When it's captured in a diary. That's my favourite. When they're just... They write about being above everyone else and being the only one who's like got their pure eyes Adrian Mole. Yeah, I'm the only one who understands the world. I mean, he did fairly well at school. He got, at the time, what were five CSEs and three GCEs. At the time when they just counted the number and like that. So yeah, yeah. I've got this many. But he definitely thought he was superior and that he was an exceptional academic, which he really wasn't. So despite him believing that he was destined for great things and that he was so clever, he could have gone to... He spoke a lot about how he could have gone to Cambridge or Oxford if he'd have bothered. I could if I wanted to. Um, But he just left school and joined the Merchant Navy. He wasn't particularly good at that either. He only lasted three months, which I guess is basic training, and then out. So just bumming around at home, his dad eventually said, well, you can come and have a job at one of the car dealerships where I'm the general manager. But he definitely said he was going to have to work his way up from the bottom. And when he started, he was just the dog's body, making cups of coffee. He wasn't allowed to drive the cars. He wasn't allowed to do anything. But as Cannon tells it, he was living it up. He thought that car salesman was a glamorous job. He described it as being a high-flying lifestyle, hanging out with a fast crowd. We'd be driving the Jaguars at night. That's how he did it. He said he was an expert in depreciation and projection of figures and that he was known as Top Gun because he was a Top Gun. So he thinks he's on work experience as the manager. Basically. He described his character as like he had a big head and a big mouth. He thought he was flashy and confident and there. His mother, however, when interviewed by Christopher Berry D, said that she didn't know that he had any expert training in figures or sales or and that the only way that he would knew about cars was he used the glasses car guide. So basically like the blue book sort of thing they mm. use in America. So that's all he had. He wasn't an expert in anything. And that although he thought he was a Top Gun persona, she knew that all the other salesmen called him Billy Liar. That was I his nickname. Billy Bullshit has got a better ring to it, if I'm honest. And so, of course... Cannon said that his reasons for leaving were because the others were all jealous of him and they made his life unbearable. They couldn't bear his success and they were just dicks. But Barry D believes that the fact that he was working in a menial position when he actually thought he was superior is the first step to his violent behaviour later, this sort of dissatisfaction Mm. with humanity. So the second step in what he believed was his road to violent behaviour was his marriage to a lady called June Vale. So she had worked in an off-licence near the garage where Cannon worked and they'd been engaged for seven years before marrying. Yet Cannon still blames their families for hassling him to get married as being what ruined his happiness as a young person. And seven years is not a rush. They couldn't have been hassling it. They couldn't have been forcing him that much that he lasted seven years before marrying. But he said that that ruined his happiness and success being forced to marry. 
And he said it was worse when she became pregnant without his consent. And I'm sorry, but your consent was when you had sex with her. Yeah. Like, it's not like... When you put your dick in. She can't... She doesn't, like... <laughs> if you close your eyes really tightly, you can force the sperm to become a baby. <laughs> That's not how it works. But he wasn't happy that he'd been tied down. And he said, from a spiritual point of view, things got on top of me then. Like, he really blamed the circumstances and blamed other people for bringing him down. It was also said by others who worked with him at the garage, that despite having pretty much no male friends, he didn't have friends there, he didn't have friends out of there, he would still cheat on June at every opportunity. Oh. So he sort of felt that, he, like his charm as a child, he felt that he could manipulate women in ways that he couldn't men, and that he found it quite easy to charm them yeah. and get them on the side. But like the thrill of the chase a bit as well. He didn't really like the chase. That no? pissed him off quite a lot. He liked oh. to get it instantly. He felt like women should be falling at his feet and that he was irresistible. So, 1980, when he was aged 26, so the child was there, he wasn't happy, and he got heavily into drinking, and he was basically an alcoholic at this point. He'd rarely go home to June and his daughter in the evening after work, and he'd just go out to bars and clubs and stay out for as long as he could, often staying at a and b something like that. So at this time, he met a woman whose name, as far as I'm aware in all the things I've read so far, have, was protected. So she was known as Sharon in the documents. He met her out, and both of them pretended that they were unmarried, despite that being otherwise, and they started dating. So Cannon had then lost his job and was now staying in a and b having his parents kicking him out. Well, he left, basically. So he very quickly moved in with Sharon and her kids. And it said that they didn't get on so well. He was hypersensitive to criticism and would fly into violent rages. But I think there's a lot to criticise him about. He's moved in with you, now having lost his job. He's basically alcoholic. Like, what's he doing for you? But when he would go into these violent rages, he would Sharon would get um, beaten. So... Not too long, because it was still 1980, and it was that Christmas then. Sharon said to him, right, my ex is coming round. She said, he's going to come, he's going to see the kids, so can you just make yourself scarce and go away for a few days? He wasn't happy with this. He was madly jealous, didn't believe anything about it. And when he returned, thought that she'd be glad to see him. But she said, you know what, actually? It's been quite nice. Yeah, (laughs) I don't think this is going to happen anymore. Relationship's over. This is the bit that I don't understand, how it went from that to they then agreed, both people, both parties said that they then agreed to go and have sex one last time. (laughs) It's never a good idea with someone who doesn't beat you up. So I don't know why you're like, I'm sure you'll get another dick at some point. There's no (laughs) need for a one last time. Not only another dick, a better dick. Exactly. But it's that point on that their accounts differ. So, Cannon admits that he he called them prosthetics, which is obviously incorrect. A prosthetic is like a medical term for a you know an arm, a leg, yeah. something you have on. But basically, he would use rubber pants with like a penis attached to them. Strap on. Yeah, but like full strap-on. little full little boxes. Why strap on? Um, so they were. Having, she didn't like that. She didn't really want it to be used. 
but who said, yes, I did use that stuff. And I became angry with her during sex because she'd ruined our relationship and the sort of the sex game sort of went wrong and I ended up hitting her. Sharon, however, tells a horrific story of how they were having sex and he started to strangle her. And she said, you've got to stop. You're going to kill me. He basically said, I want to kill you. You've ruined everything. He then said that he wanted to use his prosthetics. He demanded anal sex. She managed to fight him off and then eventually said, look, we can, but I need to get some Vaseline, thinking I can get out of the room. But he held her as they walked to the room to get it and then held her on the way back. So she said she took her moment. They were at the top of the stairs making their way back to the bedroom. And she's like, there's only one way to get out of this. He is, he's trying to kill me. Yeah. She sort of threw herself down the stairs. Sure. So he fell with her. And he ended up on top of her. She was blacked out. She had been beaten by him. He did ring the ambulance and they went to A&E together where the police then came and took him back to the house to collect his things. But she had, um, she had to have dental work because where it had been hit so badly. And... She basically didn't report this attack at the time. She said that she just had no faith in the legal system and that he would be out in a few years. It was only going to piss him off more. She just want, He was leaving, so she just wanted him gone. Mm, yeah. So she didn't actually make press charges over that. But he was questioned about this assault three months later, but only after he was brought in for a really horrific attack on another woman. So this was now 6th of March, 1981, where Cannon then went into a knitwear shop where Jean Bradford was working. And it was a family-run business, so her parents were involved in it. So she was working there, and she had her 17-month-old son with her. So Cannon came in, and he had a handkerchief over his face, and it said that he was holding it, sort of pretending he had a runny nose, but also trying to cover his identity and he just sort of skulked around until he was the only person in the shop and I think how runny is your nose that you just hold it yeah. wipe blow anything I don't know sometimes I stuff a tissue up there and just go into a shop no <laughs> just make a cup of tea so when he was the only one went in there he approached Jean and went into the office with her holding a knife so he said went into the back office and said if you don't hand over all the money that's here, I'm going to cut your baby. Oh, I'm going to hurt the child. So she obviously just agreed. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. And then he made her stand facing a wall in the corner, holding her uh, child while he took the money out of the till, kept asking her, there must be more, where else is the money? But they were interrupted because Jean's mother, who was also a partner in the shop, came in. She didn't really think anything was the problem so she was just like barged into the office like who's this what's going on and Cannon said obviously showed her the knife said I'm gonna cut this child unless you shut up stand still and so he tied up um, Jean's mother he then cut the telephone cord because it kept ringing all the time and it was driving him mad it said that he got more and more angry because he couldn't Jean apparently knew there was a 20 pound note in an envelope somewhere but he was making her face the wall so she couldn't look. He wouldn't let her move to look at it and he couldn't find it. So he was getting more and more just frustrated. And then he eventually went to her and he 
committed a very violent rape on Jean, while obviously her mother was there and her son. They tried. She tried to stop him. Obviously, she told him, "I'm pregnant. Please don't." But he's like, "Well, that won't make." He yeah, thought so. That's that's pretty much what he said. He's like, "Well, well, it won't do any harm then." But the cutting of the telephone wire is probably what saves their lives at this point because it had been Jean's husband that had been ringing the shop trying to get through. And then he obviously became extremely worried and went straight round there. Mm. He was banging on the front door that Cannon had locked, so Cannon said, how can I get out of here and escaped out the back? Now, obviously, the Bradfords immediately reported this to the police Mm. and gave a description of the attacker. said he was 5'10", Slim, dark, he said he desperately needed a shave, he said he was quite dark haired, quite neat, um, quite a hairy guy. But his most distinguishing feature that they could remember was his monobrow. <laughs> he does have a very pronounced monobrow that he cultivated nicely. Or as they put it in um, Christopher's book, Christopher Berry D's book, he talks about it as eyebrows that met amongst along the bridge of his nose. Like <laughs> It's a fucking monobrow. Like, yeah. Whoa, pretending. Um, so then a photo fit was made that was shown in the newspapers and on TV. And a week later, he, someone had called in and identified him, and so he was arrested. And the police said, well, why?" You, it was quite obvious that he had shaved a gap where his monobrow oh, had been. Shaved, no. So if he'd have plucked it, it might have looked more natural, yeah. but there was like very clearly just a rectangular shave down his face. Can't have been me. Yeah. So they were like, why have you shaved your eyebrows? Like, because I want to look good. It's pure vanity. Like, that's all it is. Like, stop. He was getting quite upset about it. His lodgings were searched and they found whips, coils of rope, and they also found a letter from Sharon, the ex-partner, calling him evil and depraved. And they kept going on about the eyebrows and they also noticed that he had cut marks where he'd done like a bodge job of it. Oh, like That's how little he shaved that he'd actually cut his eyebrows. When I was about 13, I used to shave in between my eyebrows because I, I was too scared to pluck. Yeah. And then one time, one of my friends was like, have you shaved your eyebrows? Like, no, no. And they just gradually get further and further apart. <laughs> but so then, the letter that they'd found from Sharon in his house had a photograph of him and Sharon together. And they were like, oh, well, you had a monobrow in this picture that was taken this year. And he's like, well, sometimes I have it and sometimes I don't. What do you want from me? But basically, the monobrow was what sealed the deal. So... In June of 1981, he was sentenced to eight years in prison. Five was for the attack on Jean, and three was for stealing a car when he quit his job at the dealership. That seems a really small amount, five Mm. years, for a really violent rape. Mm. At knife point. Yeah. But that's what he got, so he was sent to prison. But that is nowhere near the end of John Cannon's tale. So 1984... Cannon was moved to a semi-open prison in Dorset and here he decided that he wanted to try and get access to his daughter. So he got in touch with a solicitor called Annabelle Rose and she was well-dressed, well-educated, married to a barrister and they had instant chemistry. 
Um, so Cannon wrote in his letters later that there was something about her that convinced him that he could pull her. He was like, yeah, I just knew I could get her if I wanted. And they had a an affair that would continue for many years. So in January of 1986... He was moved from there to Wormwood Scrubs as part of a pre-release scheme. So to rehabilitate him, it was like he had to stay in a hostel and he had a bit of freedom. He could actually go and come back when he wanted to. And he would often borrow the cook's car to go and drive up to Bristol to see Annabelle Rose. And he described that her as being one of his hottest lovers. You, th- I never understand that... I mean, there's a big thing about women... You know, the ones that write to serial killers. Mm. But I would thought as a solicitor, like, you're used to working with criminals and hearing about things. And It's happened a few times, hasn't it, though, when a lawyer or a, someone working with the criminal has started an affair with them. You think, why? Yeah. They're the worst. Some people said that they're not sure that she knew about his, the, the fact that he was there for rape because she was working with him to access his daughter, not to appeal his crime or anything. So, But I would have thought you would get that information. If you're visiting someone in prison, that you yeah. would know what they're there for. But their affair continued. Eventually, he was released in 86. And he then relocated to Bristol so that he could be near her. She was still living with her husband and then she would see him when she could. But they were still together. But 6th of October, 1986, in Reading, there was, this is another pseudonym, Donna Tucker. She'd had an argument with her husband and gone out for a drive to cool down. I remember my parents doing this all the time. Really? Yeah, if they had a big argument, that one of them would go off, go off in the car oh, somewhere. Oh, would you be a scared little kid? Like, well, no, I wasn't scared, like, with one parent. I think that's probably... Would you not scared they wouldn't come back? No. <laughs> that would have freaked me the fuck out. That's what you have to do if you don't want an argument in front of your kids. One of you go... Like, what's the point in being angry together in front of us? Yeah, that's We're true. only going to piss you off more. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they used to... So she'd done something similar. So she was alone in a car in the evening, trying to just get some space, clear her head. She'd parked up and was reading a book. And a man came to ask her for directions. When she obviously started talking to him. He then pulled out a knife, I believe, and told her to let him in and drive to an industrial estate where he raped her. He then made her drive him to the train station where he left her, and she immediately went and contacted the police. So John Cannon was identified as a suspect in this, and they did collect loads of DNA at the time. She'd handed, she'd gone straight to the police, handed them all of her clothes. Like she had quite clearly like sexual fluids, mm. the whole shebang. But at the time, 1986, it only could give inconclusive results. So this, in conjunction with the fact that John Cannon was saying, "Well, I was in Sutton Coalfield at the time," meant that he couldn't be charged for it. So after this. John Cannon did move back to Sutton Coalfield to live with his mum. So his relationship with um, Annabelle was sort of cooling. She was spending more time with her husband. She wasn't seeing, like, the thrill of it had gone Mm. slightly. She was still seeing him, but not as regularly. And 1987, he began dating an ex-Olympic ice skater, apparently, called Gilly or Jilly. 
Page, and he seduced her at a hotel in Bristol, basically been making eyes at her, and then asked for a bottle of champagne to be sent up to her room. Mm. Suave. Yeah, I thought that. I mean, the, this girl was 24, this guy who apparently is supposed to be attractive, even though he does still have a monobrow, <laughs> send you champagne. Be like, oh, this is nice. But his note I thought was creepy. He said, like, oh, I'd love to see you. Don't disappoint me. Yeah, that's like, creepy. And it's that thing that he did. I mean, staff at the hotel remembered him. He would go there a lot. And they said that he was really up himself. That he described as being oily. Mm. They said he was the type that would snap his fingers at the waiters and yeah. complain about everything. And so that, don't disappoint me, just rings to me of those kind of guys that just... It is that misogyny of, like, just please me. You're here for me. I'm going to discard you afterwards. I did I don't think he gave a shit about it. He is a bit really. of a typical car salesman to an extent, isn't he? Except he wasn't allowed near the cars. Yeah. So. But they did sleep together that night. And the next day he gave her a lift to Birmingham. And basically on the drive, apparently he spoke... Every time they were passing woods, he was talking about, oh, that'd be a really good place to dispose of a body. <laughs> Fucking hell. And Imagine that, like, the day after you've got with someone. You'd be freaked the fuck out. Yeah. The next day, the conversation where... I'm sure we've probably both done similar, but yeah, he he was talking about ways to dispose of bodies. He was quizzing her on names for like sexual perversions, being like, "Oh, do you know what it's called if someone has sex with dead bodies?" Although my friend came over not long ago, who's a chemistry teacher, and I did say to him, "How would you get rid of a body then?" Yeah, <laughs> like, you, you must have tips. I was like, "Could you commit a perfect murder?" And he said, "Yeah, I think I've thought about it." <laughs> and I was, like, "Well, I do know him, so it's fine." You know he's not creepy. Yeah, but the first time, you think, who have I slept with? (laughs) So even after this, though, she did continue to date him a few more times. She said that she was hypnotised by his eyes. And he just said it was a notch on the bedpost because he couldn't be expected to sit around tapping his fingers while Annabelle was waiting to leave her husband. August, then, so not long after, his relationship with Annabelle did officially end. And for him, he didn't... Similar to when his relationship with Sharon ended, he didn't take it well and committed a violent act. This relationship with Annabelle ended, he didn't take it well. He hired a private investigator to follow her. He was wanting daily reports. He was harassing her. And then he went on to commit another violent act. Before that, though, he did try a different act and signed up for a dating agency before being creepy rapey. It was one of those ones where you would film a video of yourself. Oh, yeah. And then they would send a VHS to other people (laughs) in the agency so they can see. Uh, They should bring that back. It would be good, though, because sometimes hearing their voice, you can tell if they're a bit weird or not. It's like Tinder with videos. Maybe they should put videos on Tinder. Hi. I do look better in motion. Hi, I'm Emma. (laughs) Reel them in. So he went and recorded this video, and on it, you, there's in the Crime Watch documentary, you can see you see a small clip of it where basically he's talking about everything he doesn't want, which is always a yeah. turn off. No. So they're going, I hate. He sat there in his crappy suit, putting on a voice, talking about, well, I hate pretension. That's something I can't stand when people. I just like average, ordinary people, and I think, oh, because you want to be better than them. Yeah. He was basically looking for people that he could feel superior to. And with him not being that superior, he didn't actually want anyone. (laughs) That's not good. He also specified that he wanted a girl with stunning good looks and had to be in great physical shape. 
Well, they are going to be better than him then. Exactly. So the agency, however, after having sat and recorded this interview with him, just felt that he was too creepy and they <laughs> didn't release it. They wouldn't give it to anyone. I wouldn't, I wouldn't submit this on anyone. I, I thought that was really good of them. Yeah. Because like, sometimes you see videos of people, like there's some going around on YouTube now where it's like cringy ones. And you think, and you feel a little bit bad for laughing. Mm. But I love this agency. They're like, you're so creepy, no one deserves to date you. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're not putting it out there. So then, 7th of October, 1987, a woman named Julia Holman was walking to her car in Bristol Centre and a man came up to the car, took out a, what appeared to be a small handgun and tried to force himself into the car. He said, do what I say and I won't hurt you. Julia was having none of it. She sort of kicked her legs out of the car to knock him back and was able to slam the door shut and drive off. Good girl. She did really well. She did t- tell the police, but it wasn't until later that they would suspect Cannon for this attempted abduction after the disappearance of a woman named Shirley Banks. This was just the next day, the 8th of October. Shirley left work as normal. She'd been shopping in Topshop after work. She met some friends for drinks, but then she didn't show up to meet her husband for drinks later. I mean, she's got a fucking good social life. Work, shopping, drinks, more drinks. She'd only been married for one month, so I think she was still in that happy seeing everyone, how's your honeymoon stage. money in the bank. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The next morning, so so she hadn't come home all night, so her husband rang her work to see if she was there, And they said, no, she's phoned us to say she's not feeling well. She's not coming in. So we thought she'd be at home with you. And he was like, oh, okay, bye. So a missing persons report was filed. And police then believed that the same man who the day before had gone to a car, a woman alone in a car park at night and attempted to abduct her, something similar must have happened to Shirley, that she'd been in the town centre, she was on her own, going to a car somewhere. And the next day he tried again and been successful. So the two cases, they planned to link them with a reconstruction on Crime Watch, and they were going to show it in November. But events at the 29th of October would mean that they didn't need to do it. So it was this day, 29th of October, and it was in Leamington Spa. A man entered a boutique called Ginger, and he pulled out a knife in front of the two women who were working there and threatened them, wanted cash. Very similar to with Jean Bradford. At the sewing shop. Yeah. Uh, But one woman just managed to sort of like barge past and ran for the door and then ran out into the street screaming, you know, help, there's a man in here, he's got a knife. So the man was wearing a motorcycle helmet, he was carrying a bag that he'd had the knife in and he ran out into the street knowing that someone would be coming. And two passers-by gave chase. Some blokey blokes just ran right after him. Oh, brilliant. They did lose him. They saw him running into the church grounds and sort of lost track of him. A police car was nearby. They got the police involved and they went into the churchyard where they found a discarded plastic bag that a had... ripped off Molly Brown. <laughs> a wax strip. A wax strip. <laughs> yeah. But it did have a knife in it. It had a jacket. And there were bloodstains on it, which made them think that the guy had just been hurrying and had cut himself on the knife. 
So then they went around looking in the streets to find someone and they approached a man who was sort of skulking in the area who turned out to be John Cannon and he had a bleeding hand. Mm. So John was arrested. His black BMW was parked outside the boutique and they followed a trail of blood in the streets nearby to a, a garage toilet where there'd been a coil of rope hidden in a cistern. And then in his car, they found more coils of rope. Basically like a it's little rape kit. Yeah. So further examination of his car, they found the tax disc belonging to Shirley Banks' car, who was still missing. It was an orange mini. That's a weird thing to keep. I thought that. Why is it? Because it was apparently in some documents. So he'd taken the tax disc out of her car and put it in a folder that oh, was yeah. in his car. Maybe he had like a month left on his and he was like, ooh. Use this. <laughs> Save a bit of money where you can. Police had also been searching his properties and in his garage they found a Mini that was bright blue. But the it had been hand-painted. Oh, God. A really bad paint job. I don't even know where you begin to hand-paint a car. No. There's no paint. Everything is emulsion. There's no paint that you could hand-paint on a car, is there? Apparently, you can see the brush strokes. He <laughs> hand-painted this car, and it had new registration plates on it. But from the interior, they had confirmed that it was actually Shirley Banks. So, Cannon, he was in custody but he was not being cooperative. He was trying to con- control the situation by being a dickhead, mm. not answering questions that were important, monologuing at length about totally irrelevant things and basically just being a pain in the arse for everyone. But he denied any involvement and was saying nothing. So no body had been found for Shirley. And so the police were having to, like, because there were these rules that they can only keep you fair like 36 hours or something without charging you they were having to play it really cleverly so originally he was arrested and held for the three days for the attempted attack in the boutique and then when they find the car okay now we can hold you for a bit longer and each time they were finding things or new cases they were able to just hold him that bit longer because they needed as much time as possible it wasn't helping like I say, without the body, it could all be circumstantial. He said that he'd bought the car from an auction and it'd been put in his garage. And then when it went, came out in the news about the orange mini, he thought, shit, I'm a convicted rapist. If I go to the police and say, look, I've got the mini, then there's no way they'll believe me that I didn't take her. So I just painted it blue and panicked. Then they invited Julia Holman, the badass bitch who managed to fight him off. They invited her to go to an identity parade and see if she could pick him out. And straight away, she said, yes. she was like, she's like, I listened to what they were saying, but she was like, out of the corner of my eye, I could tell which one it was straight away. She, there was no doubt in her mind who it was. Then, in his belongings, they found a ticket for a dry cleaners. And they went there, and Canada had taken a raincoat in October after Shirley's disappearance, and it was covered in red mud. So not blood, but it was like, you know how you get like reddish clay type yeah. soil. But it was quite distinctive. So Cannon said that, oh, I'd put my jacket in the boot of my car and then put a lawnmower on top of it. And then when police were like, this is a bit 
bullshit. He was like, yeah, well, it was from the lawnmower. And also, I didn't want to tell you, but I'd had sex in a park with a woman and we'd done it on top of the raincoat and the mud was red where we were. I was like, mm, okay. Forensics, however, showed that there were faded blood stains on the coat, but they could only find the blood group. And he and Shirley both had the same blood type. Oh, right. So it didn't really help anything. Yeah. They did find a Topshop bag in his car, which is obviously where Shirley had been shopping the day, night she'd gone missing. But it was on the 22nd of December... 1987 that the breakthrough came and he could finally be charged with Shirley's murder in his house they found a stack of papers in a chest and on one of the papers there was a perfect thumbprint belonging to Shirley so he'd said he'd never met her didn't know her not had anything to do it and there was her thumbprint in his flat so he'd definitely been lying they sort of had him yeah and so then he was finally charged with it with it and they could keep him as long as they wanted. Easter Sunday, so while he was awaiting trial, so 1988 now, Easter Sunday, the, a member of the public did discover Shirley's body. So it was in a wooded area near a river, and it showed that she had been beaten around the head and left there. Not nice that they found the body, but it does mean they're getting a sort I know, I can see your face, you're looking yeah. sad. That's sad, but solid conviction. Yeah. And... This bad bitch was gathering moss. That's why she was in the woods. No dog walkers for you. Moss gatherers. Gathering moss. Moss gatherers coming at you, finding bodies left, right and centre. What's she doing with all that moss? I don't know. And why do you need to even travel to gather moss? Like, I've got it in my garden. Mm. I think that's an alibi for something else. <laughs> yeah. Why would you, What are you going to do with moss when you find it? Nothing. Exactly. It's good for nothing. So police then, I mean, this is one of those tales where the police did a really good job. They carried out financial profiling on him and it showed that he'd use his cash card to take money out in various different places that contradicted his alibi for the rape of Donna Tucker back in Reading where she had all the DNA stuff, but it was inconclusive. So they knew he was lying about where he was. And even in those two years... DNA testing had improved to the point where that when they retested it, they could say, yes, it was definitely Cannon that had raped her. A perfect match. So now they had him on even more. So now I'm going to read you. So April 1989, he finally went to trial charged with the following things. And I'm going to read you the list of charges, if that's okay. Yeah. I love that he kept the raincoat. <laughs> like, it's too good to throw away. Let's see if we can get this red stuff out of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my yellow raincoat. I just took that away recently. Gutted. It's one of those classic pieces that never goes out of style. If you've got mm. a really good, like, pea coat, raincoat, mm. trench coat, what are you going to do? Classic. Yeah, it looks good with everything. So, he was charged with the 1989. He was charged with um, sexual assault and Sharon Major, the ex that he had. He was charged with separate buggery at the time they used the buggery of Sharon Major, separately indecent assault on her, separately grievous bodily harm on her. Then he was charged with the rape of Donna Tucker, buggery of Donna Tucker, indecent assault of her, also abduction of her, and um, keeping against the will, which sort of like, to me, seemed the same sort of thing, but 
anyway. Also, attempted abduction of Julia Holman, rape of Julia Holman. He was also charged with stealing the mini that belonged to Shirley Banks. He was charged with forcibly abducting Shirley Banks. He was charged with sexual intercourse, so rape with Shirley Banks. He was charged with murder of Shirley Banks. He was charged with attempted robbery of the... Um, boutique that he went to and he was also charged with attempted abduction of the women that worked in the shop so pretty hefty Mm. charge list so of course the trial lasted ages it went on for three weeks but he was convicted and for every single one of those charges which is quite rare actually isn't it so he has tried to appeal his convictions so many times saying that the police didn't treat him fairly, the interview process wasn't fair, various different things, all of which have been overturned. So the big chunk of this case that I haven't been able to talk about, well, I'll mention it briefly, but if anyone's interested, there's other places you can go, is that once he was convicted, he's also been suspected of murders of two other women in 1986, so around that time when he'd just been released from prison. So... 2002 police had a press conference where they officially named him as the main suspect that they believe murdered a missing estate agent called Susie Lamplow and that's quite a big case there's lots of separate documentaries that you can watch about how she went missing and possible things that have happened to her but there hasn't ever been enough evidence to convict there's a lots of online debates that you can look at where people really strongly believe it was him mm. really strongly believe it wasn't uh, and even back in 1989 the police said we gave everything if we could have got him on another charge we'd have made it happen we've yeah. worked with the metropolitan police to make it happen but that hasn't come off he's also looked at in the relation to the murder of a woman called sandra court um, she was found in similar circumstances to shirley banks and a note had been given to the police after her death, saying, basically saying, "Oh, Sandra's death was an accident. I'm really sorry about it." It was sort, of, it was sort of like again, like a sex has gone wrong thing. And this handwritten note had been written with the left hand to disguise the writing. But Christopher Berry D believes that he's looked at it with handwriting experts. He believes that there are similarities, even though that it's been written with a different hand. Mm. So there's two huge. Um, cases for that he may have committed these other two crimes but there's even people online there's huge debates over whether he even murdered shirley banks people really? there's um there's campaigns to have him released and people that protest his innocence i know i think he did it and to be honest i wouldn't be raving about getting him released because he's due for parole in 2023 oh fuck we're done that's the end of it it was well long wasn't it yeah it was pretty long It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And he goes, don't be a hero, mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. Good evening, and this city remains stunned by yesterday's massacre. They are indeed. Let's get murdery. What were you thinking that first moment when the crocodile latched on? Smell the glory, daddy. Send your knuckle butt. I was singing, I'm gone. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. We make bloody murder. Indeed. It's a weekly true crime podcast focusing on lesser known serial killers and crime stories from Australia. And around the globe. I like eating bananas and punching children. And I ran out of bananas. <laughs> Bloody Murder is available on iTunes, Stitcher. And pretty much everywhere. On we go. So I'm going to tell you about Edward Lowe. This is a real old one and it's only a little bit British. But it, following your rules, previously is it, because it they qualifies. Wrote, what's the British connection? It's like the Queen has visited it. No, they're born in Britain. It's fine. I'll accept that. Born in 1690, this is an oldie, like real old, in London. Edward Lowe was a child who made money as a thief and a pickpocket. Think Oliver. Think Fagin's gang. Basically just robbing people on the street. And he was part of a family of thieves. So he was illiterate and so was his brother and his family would just leave and whenever they got a chance his brother Richard used to snatch hats and wigs and put them in a basket on his friend's back in a crowd oh nice yeah wig snatch people do that now but they just put it on YouTube and are like lol yeah as he grew up he was a bit of an alcoholic um, just a bit of an alcoholic yeah. like he wasn't one of those real alcoholics just yeah every everyone was an alcoholic though like the the booze was cleaner than the water can't blame anyone Particularly in London, yeah. His brother carried on being a criminal as well. He became a burglar and he was hanged at Tyburn for burgling a house. This is quite British. Yeah. So Lowe became very tired of his life of thieving and he thought his... He's got RSI from snatching wigs. (laughs) Yeah, well, as his brother. Um, But his best option was to leave London and travel to America, which was then the new world and had new opportunities. That fucking journey in the 1600s, for me, is basically a suicide mission. Like, I'm travel sick on an hour-long coach journey. (laughs) There is no way I'm lasting on a boat to America. No. Well, he spent a lot of his life on boats, but I think it sounds the worst. Yeah. Because you're, like, trapped in the sea. Trapped in a sea, eating meat that is so salty, just because that's the only way to preserve it. Rats go on there. Oh, yeah. 
No flushing toilets. Nope. Shitting off the side. So, um, when he got to America, he... Did they shit off the side, like just hang cheek over the edge? I think so. When he got to America, he drifted along the eastern coast for a while, and then he settled in Boston, Massachusetts, where he worked as a ship rigger. And he married Eliza Marble at the First Church of Boston, and they had a son. Now, unfortunately, the son died very young, which was fairly common in the 1600s. And then five years into their marriage, Lowe's wife died during childbirth. Lowe did have a daughter, and she survived. Uh, but he didn't look after her. He kind of just palmed her off. I think kind of, it wasn't the thing that the man would be a single parent, really. They'd, they'd no. give it to a family and then they'd visit or send money. So he was um, he was a shipbreaker and he had a commanding officer um, who was a total dick and didn't get on with him. Low in response to that, after a day gathering logwood, coming back on board, saying... Right, I'll get on with more work One I've eaten and had a drink. And so all the boys that have been with me. The commanding officer said, no, you're going to have to get, get on with work now. And Lou wasn't having it. So he grabbed a, pis- a pistol and shot him in the face. Mutiny! Yeah. Um, I'd be so on board with this. He missed. Oh. Well, I mean, that's even better because that, oh, we didn't actually kill you. Mutiny! On the pistols, the one that fire about seven crappy bullets and they all go everywhere. So you can't really... Yeah. Can't really get a good aim anyway. That's why everyone did duels. Because I'm like, why would anyone agree to a duel in the 17th century? Because you're... And all the... Like, to settle a dispute. Like, oh, yeah, let's shoot each other and see if we die. But lots of times, neither one died. Because they're just right at you. Weren't all the bullets handmade as well? So they just ping off in some weird direction or have a weird spin to them. And just was completely inaccurate. So, in response to this, Lowe was this was out at sea. Lowe was put in a rowboat and with the other men who were also mutinying, and they were just left in the Gulf of Honduras to die. And the chances were that they were going to die. They had no food, no water, and it was yeah. hot. Now, instead of waiting to die, they got back in the rowboat and they went over to a sailboat. They had no weapons, nothing. Boarded the ship somehow, killed the captain, and said, "Right, this is our boat now." So this began the life of being a pirate. They hoisted a black flag and said, we're now a pirate ship. Yeah. Yeah. Why put the flag up? Mm, it's cool, isn't it? I know. It's another one of those things, though. It's like, you're just being extra and you're going to get yourself caught out. No one's seeing It's that. like the Cambridge rapist with his hat that said rapist on it. Like, oh, well done. <laughs> so, Lowe and his man set out for the Cayman Islands after this. Um, And they came across George Lothar, and he was quite a well-known badass pirate at the time. But rather than Lothar just killing them all and taking what they had, he quite liked Lowe. Johnny and our gang. Lowe kissed his ass, basically, because he knew it's this or death. Um, And they were offered a spot on Lothar's crew. Nice. So Lowe worked with Lothar until 1722 when Lowe forced the men to pick sides and said, I'm going to go it alone. And he left with 44 men and a lot of Lothar's weapons and food. But there are a few different reports here. So some reports say that Lothar gave his blessing and just said, yeah, that's fine. We're getting too big anyway. You take some yeah. some of the supplies. Other reports like said... franchise this out. Yeah. But some of them said he ran off with, with what he could get. So Lowe and his men 
headed to a fishing harbour in Nova Scotia, Canada. And as fish, they sort of parked themselves. And when the fishing boats came in to rest over the weekend and bring in the fish they caught, Lowe and his crew would basically just take the boats by force, jump on and take what they had. And they would just loot, basically. So they were just yeah. making money to live off and food, taking food supplies and things. So they looted uh, an 80-ton boat, and that became his new flagship, and he armed this with guns on the sides. And it was called, originally, Mary of Joseph, but he renamed it. Now, because there's nothing like being deeply religious and a pirate. (laughs) The names that they give the boats I find hilarious, because they're these badass pirates that are swashbuckling, guns on the ship. He called it Fancy. Ooh. It's a little bit fabulous, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, they're all wearing earrings and yeah, <laughs> singing songs, horn piping the night away. <laughs> so then the crew set off to the coast along New England and the Caribbean. Fancy was their main boat, and they were, they had a small fleet of ships with other sort of groups that he he placed on them. So they were they were going in a group, and I think it was the thing a fleet. that yeah, I think it was the thing that if you were in the sea traveling along then you'd see suddenly oh there's a group of ships approaching holy shit but they were they were pretty fast they could cut you off and then they'd just all surround you and then you were pretty much done movement yeah i love he was completely ruthless he did synchronized sailing he's a very violent pirate so he would just kill everyone on board oh so they'd get on he's ruining my pirate fantasy (laughs) they would capture everyone they would torch ships that they didn't want to take. Um, really violent to sailors. They'd come up with new and horrific ways to torture them. Uh, so it wasn't just... Like the boo box. Is that the one with the rat in? That's, it's the one they have on hook where they put the scorpions in going close. I don't think, they, I don't think they'd go for the long-termers. I think it'd be a, should we chop this one's leg off type thing. Okay. Which part shall we take? Bit like Operation... So, some ways that Lowe would torture people he captured. Cut off their ears. Cut off their noses. Not cutting off of things. Just really minor things as well. Set fire to their hands and feet. Is this before he killed them, do you think? Or do you think you're just like, yeah, yeah now you can just no. live your life with no nose? Before, I think they bleed to death. Burn them alive. Decapitate them. Throw them overboard. Whip them with a cat of nine tails. Or rubber hoses. Whip them with a rubber hose. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was like a term on its own, like, oh, rubber hosing. Like, that's the good one. That's the good one, yeah. So, Lowe gained quite a reputation as being one of the most menacing pirates. And people... With Did his... he have a pirate name? Or was he just no, always yeah. called Edward Lowe? He didn't call himself, like... Like, you know, if, like, oh, Blackbeard's a thing, Redbeard's a thing. Oh, I'm Edward Lowe and I'm the fucking sickest. I could give myself a name. Pricky McPrickface. No, I don't know. Choppy Mick Dickhead. It wasn't something beard, though. I know that. So, another of Lowe's ships was called the Rose Pink. What? Another fabulous name. Do you think they do it like... Do you think they all the pirates Do you pirates think they're trying to be that? ironic, though? I don't know if that was a pirate thing, just to have the Although the ships are ladies, aren't they? Yeah. They're just sailing in giant vaginas. <laughs> I'm going to call mine, like, the plush labia or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Beef curtains. So, over time, the boats would need repairing. And the way that they would do this was something called careering. I'm going to say, why would you repair it? Just jump on another one. 
Um, I, well, if you've got I one, I suppose if you're in it and there's no one else around. Yeah, if you've got a massive one that you've kitted out with all your guns. Oh yeah, true. It's not even worth it. So they they did a thing called careering, which is where they would get the boat and drive um, to somewhere where it's quite inland, and then as the tide went out, the boat would be grounded and it would sort of lie on its side, and then they'd be able to do repairs to the side that they needed to do. So Lowe was quite inexperienced at this because he'd not been pirating for too long and he ordered too many men to work on the boat and he left the portholes open and the boat tipped and two of his men died. Um, And they also lost most of their food from the boat and the men had to ration food and water after that. So that's kind of one of the things that is talked about in terms of although he was really violent, he wasn't that sort of logical or experienced. Yeah. Um... So after that, uh, his troop headed to Tobago and they captured a new ship, which was called Ranger, which is a little bit more, mm. as you would expect. Why not change it? And he continued capturing ships and killing people who were on them around the Caribbean for a while. Lowe and his men captured a Portuguese ship and the captain had treasure on board. And this is probably one of the most, the things that he's most famous for. So he he didn't want Lowe to have the treasure. So rather than giving him the treasure, he threw it overboard. He said, if, you're, if, if I'm not going to have it, no one's going to have it. So Lowe was really, really angry about this. Because what's the point to him? He could have had that money. So in response, he sliced off the captain's lips with a cutlass. Ooh. Broiled them. Which is that, is that cooking in water? Broiling? And then he forced the captain to eat them while they were still hot. And that's sort of what he's known for a little bit, for this slicing off of the lips. It's kind of his big, horrific act. He then murdered all of the crew, and obviously the captain bled to death. So news of this travelled around, that he was so awfully into this terrible thing to quite a well-respected man, um, and a bounty was placed on Lowe's head. And he decided to go to Azores, and he teamed up with another captain um, who was a pirate called Charles Harris. So they, they formed this sort of two, double team with two, two people at the helm. Yeah. So in the Azores, people were still trying to stop Lowe's reign of terror because it kind of became something that you could be famous for. If you took down Cap- uh, the pirate right. Lowe, then you were going to be big news. So people wanted to stop him. A heavily armed man of war, captained by Peter Solgard, was sent to hunt down Lowe. And many of Lowe's crew were captured and they were sent back to England and they were hanged. But Lowe, being on fancy, escaped. Yeah, little zippy one. Later! <laughs> yeah. The pink stream was flowing in the breeze. Bye! Yeah. So following this, Lowe captured a whaling vessel and he tortured the captain on there and then shot him in the head. And he sent the crew adrift, assuming that they'd die. But they reached Nantucket and they survived. And obviously told of how he'd done another terrible act. News of where he was spreading. Lowe also took a fishing boat and he decapitated the captain. I just found it really hard. Like, these are really horrific acts. You know, if you were telling me about a serial killer who used to chop off lips, it'd be like, he's the most depraved being ever. But I'm like, it's a pirate. It's fine. Occupational hazard. (laughs) That's the price you pay to dance the hornpipe on fancy. To be double teaming at the helm with your rubber hose, you have got to cut a few lips off. Well, other people didn't see it that way. And even his crew 
was starting to get a little bit pissed bit off. Much. They were thinking, this guy's going a bit mental now. Because like, yeah. at the beginning, it was kind of like, you know, I'm sticking up for my boys. Like, we're having a tea break. He was, like, thrust into that position of yeah. leader. He was, like, the union representative. Like, yeah, let's go. And now he's obviously become taken it to the extreme. So he captured more fishing boats and his crew flat out refused to carry out his orders um, because they said he was getting too brutal. Good. I mean, I, they did the lip cutting off. Like, now it's too brutal, is it? So his two first mates abandoned him and he got another big-ass boat and he called that the Merry Christmas and he mounted 34 guns on that. Merry Christmas, motherfucker! <laughs> that's what I put down. I was thinking... There's only one time when that's good. What's your boat Every called? time he sails away, <laughs> he's just going to be like, yeah, Merry Christmas, motherfucker! Yeah. Like, that's it. So, instead of a pirate flag as well, so you know the skull and crossbones that is in white, he used a flag. I don't know how he made it. Maybe he's a seamstress as well. But he had a black flag with a red skeleton as a full body. It's actually quite beautiful it's almost couture um i'll put it on the instagram uh so he was a little bit more i don't think it was scarier i think it was just cooler um so obviously i thought there was gonna be a christmas element like oh he's wearing a little santa hat or i should have done that well i guess they wouldn't have had santa so i don't know what it's in a manger a little red skeleton (laughs) in a manger so in 1724 lo had an argument with his first mate and he retaliated by sneaking into his cabin at night when he was asleep and shooting him in the bollocks until he was dead. And when his crew woke up, they said, right, that is enough. We're not following him anymore. You've already lost two of us. Yeah. They'd taken a load of men. Shoot people in the head, not <laughs> yeah. in the bollocks. Yeah. And there is a line that runs pretty much across the abdomen and that's where we draw it. Yeah. So he was put into a longboat and he was just set sail with no food or water and set adrift. And what you know what this fucker's like. You need to kill him. He'll <laughs> yeah. jump on a ship. I wouldn't trust him going off in a longboat. Have you not heard of what he's done so far? <laughs> he's jumping on ships left, right and centre. No guns. Well, he wasn't heard of after that. So he probably did oh, die. Okay, but there are rumours that say that different things happened to him. So some say he was picked up by a merchant ship and then executed because but you'd think they'd be raving about that though. Some say he turned to a mermaid. Um and some say he died in a storm. More likely. Less, <laughs> less romantic, but who knows. So that was Edward Lowe, which was recommended by Adam Nightingale, who I believe has written some true crime books, so you can look that up as well. There you go. A pirate tale. I liked it. Good continue to vote for slash and dash so we'll put another one up there and you can if you're a dollar or more patron you can vote on who we're going to do next time which i think is really fun i like that and also if you haven't already could you please do us a review on apple Podcasts, apple Podcasts, please. or wherever you listen to your podcasts would be great that really does help us helps other people find us and it will just take you two minutes just say they're amazing just say Merry Christmas, motherfuckers. (laughs) Listening to Slaughter doesn't make you a psycho. Cutting people's lips off does. It does.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.